Hey, everybody. It's Michelle, and I am completely cup runneth over with joy because today I get to announce that Chasing the Swallow, Truth, Science, and Hope for Pediatric Feeding and Swallowing Disorders is 100% done and in publication, and you can check out your copy on Amazon. And the best part, if that book moves you, if it grows your evidence-based triangle to to engage in interprofessional practice, to do the root cause analysis to why the child is presenting with the PFD, to then engage with the team to get that child to a point of healing so that the real growth can begin, then y'all check out speechtherapypd.com because they are gracious enough to entertain all of these amazing, joyful ideas. And they're currently carrying the book for 13.5 ASHA CEUs. So (sighs) thank you for being a part of the first bite journey that led to chasing the swallow. And be sure to check out speechtherapypd.com for the 13.5 ASHA CEUs that accompany it. Happy learning. Hi, folks, and welcome to First Bite, fed, fun, and functional, a speech therapy podcast sponsored by SpeechTherapyPD.com. I am your host on this nerd venture, Michelle Dawson, MS, CCC, SLP, CLC, the all things PEDS SLP. I am a colleague in the trenches of home health early intervention right there with you. I run my own private practice, Heartwood Speech Therapy, here in Town, South Carolina, and I guess lecture nationwide on best practices for early intervention for the medically complex and fragile child. First Bite's mission is short and sweet, to bring light, hope, knowledge, and joy to the pediatric clinician, parent, or advocate by way of a nerdy conversation, so there's plenty of laughter too. In this podcast, we cover everything from AAC to breastfeeding, ethics on how to run a private practice, pediatric dysphagia to clinical supervision, and all other topics in the world of pediatric speech pathology. Our goal is to bring evidence-based practice straight to you by interviewing subject matter experts to break down the communication barriers so that we can access the knowledge of their fields. Or, as a close friend says, to build the bridge. By bringing other professionals and experts in our field together, we hope to spark advocacy joy and passion for continuing to grow and advance care for our little ones. Every fourth episode, I join in. I'm Erin Forward, MSP, CCC, SLP, the Yankee by way of Rochester, New York transplant who actually inspired this journey. I bring a different perspective, that of a newish clinician with experience in early intervention, pediatric acute care, and nonprofit pediatric outpatient settings. So sit back, relax, and watch out for all our squirrels and enjoy this geeky gig brought to you by SpeechTherapyPD.com. Hello, everybody. Y'all, I am absolutely freaking excited about today's episode 
because our guest is none other than the incredibly knowledgeable and phenomenally kind Kristen West, M-A-C-C-C-S-L-P, who is an assistant professor in the Department of Communication Sciences and Disorders at Edinburgh University in Pennsylvania. I hope I said it right. In addition, she is a doctoral student pursuing her educational doctorate at Slippery Rock University. Okay, so honestly, I'm not quite sure how we first met because... Y'all, it was one of those chance meetings that as soon as you meet the person, it feels like they've always somehow been there, but I'm pretty sure Dysphagia Outreach Project had something to do with it. Bottom line, I love it when good people find good people. So anyhow, I had the honor of interviewing Kristen for episode five of Understanding Dysphagia in June for Dysphagia Awareness Month. Full disclosure, Understanding Dysphagia is a podcast mini-series that's also sponsored by SpeechTherapyPD.com, and each episode is also eligible for ASHA Continuing Ed. Okay, so Kristen and I's entire episode was dedicated to pediatric feeding disorder. And y'all, this is Kristen's passion in our field. And can get drum Her specific area within the super broad category of pediatric feeding disorders is how to do it right in the public schools. So can I get an amen on that? (laughs) All the Baptists that are listening are like, amen. (laughs) So after numerous reschedules, because we are both balancing teaching classes, treating patients, mom life, wife life, self-care. She's also knocking out a doctorate full-time. We managed to pull this together and we are here today to share how her how-to guide for all things PFD in the schools. And my heart is elated to have you here. So Kristen, thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. (laughs) Thank you for having me. I'm so glad we could finally get our schedules to mesh. (laughs) (laughs) I think this took um, at least I don't know, three weeks and eight reattempts, <laughs> but like, yo. <laughs> Instead of like third time's the charm or whatever that saying is, it's like 15th time's the charm. <laughs> but we made it work and there's grace. So y'all, please know when you are trying to do all the things, make sure that you extend grace. We just had that conversation and that's huge because life, we're still in a pandemic that seems to be coming back around for, I don't know, round number 208 and make sure you're extending grace and checking in on the full-time working moms in your life because y'all, we are not okay. (laughs) Oh, well. Hello. Hi. (laughs) Have your little ones gone back to school yet? No. So up North, we don't go back till right around uh, Labor Day. Some go before, some go after mine go like the week before. So we're still on summer break up here. Our start tomorrow, and uh, I am relieved because trying to juggle summer camps that were changing and then no summer camps and times with camp grandma and grandfather, it's I'm excited to have that piece back in, that bit of normalcy back in. I got a couple weeks till I'm there, but yep. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so this episode is near and dear to your heart. And I know I know a little bit about your backstory and how you became a speech pathologist because of previous encounters, but can you talk to us a little bit about what made you want to be a speech pathologist and then how you got called into working with PFD and the schools? Yeah. So it's kind of an interesting story. I think most people, when you hear their story, they're like, I never thought I was going to end up here. And I'm pretty similar in that I didn't know that I was going to end up in the PFD realm. 
But yeah, I wanted to really be in a field to help people. My dad's a special educator. My mom had worked in healthcare for a while before um, changing to becoming an accountant. And so my family is just, you know, we're surrounded by helpers. And I really wanted to help people, but I didn't necessarily think that I wanted to be like a teacher in a public school. And I really enjoyed medicine, but I didn't want to be like a surgeon. So anyways, I ended up in speech in speech language pathology and I loved it. And when I went to grad school, I actually thought I was going to work with children with hearing impairment. And I ended up taking an early intervention assistantship that paid my way through graduate school. And through that, I was working with children that had special needs and early intervention, which is kind of like where I found my love <laughs> for a little or, you know, EI. And then within that, I um, really came across children, like my first encounter with a child that had autism that also had a feeding disorder. And I happened to be lucky enough to have a professor. Again, this is like, you know, back in 2007. So that was pretty early on that specialized in pediatric feeding disorders and pediatric dysphagia. And once we I took that information and I, and I had that one kind of like seminal client in grad school. It was over. Um, <laughs> I was hooked. I was done. And I, and I just, I went full-fledged, uh, pursued internships that took me down that path. And I found my way um, from early intervention into outpatient, into acute care in a hospital. And then, you know, like life happened. I, I was kind of doing the daily grind and it was really busy and I just needed a change. And I ended up going into um, the early intervention um, three to six program and and um, working with a local educational agency here in Pennsylvania, I, you know, all these kids were, you know, coming out of early intervention or going into, you know, coming into preschool EI or going into the schools and they had feeding and swallowing needs. And I, there was a great administration there that had great support um, who recognized that this was an underserved but needed area um, and we needed to address those uh, students' needs. But before that, there wasn't anybody that could do it or that was comfortable doing it, right? Um, and I came in with the skill set that I had um, and we were able to build and grow a program. And I think what's interesting about how I ended there too is a lot of times when you see feeding and swallowing services in, in public schools, you think of big, like big urban school districts, right? Like millions and millions of SLPs. And that's not where I developed my program. I mean, I was one for an entire county. Um, our biggest school graduates about 500 kids um, in our county. We have like multiple schools in each county in the county, like they're by towns. But like we're a suburban slash rural county. Like we're not urban. It takes us an hour to get into the city. Some of the edges, maybe more like 30 minutes, but still we're not, we're not an urban setting. Um, and we're not big schools with depths and depths of resources. Like the most SLPs a district has in my county is about like six or so, give or take. So, you know, not not big departments by any means, um, but we were able to do it and build it kind of in, in an interesting way. And I think kind of the takeaway for me is that you know, just because you don't have a big school or big, you know, big, deep pockets doesn't mean that it's not doable to address feeding and swallowing in, in the schools, but it just takes a little creativity in, in thinking outside the box um, and using the resources that you do have to get the program up and running. Since you and I talked, the stars have aligned here in South Carolina and I have to give a huge shout out to Angie Neal, who's the lead SLP with um, Department of Education. Her actual specialty is um, dyslexia. Woman's brilliant. Y'all, if you've ever heard her talk or if you haven't heard her talk, I would highly recommend it. And she and I collaborated on a project and starting August 1st, like two weeks ago, pediatric feeding disorders is now included within all public schools 
as a service that speech language pathologists can evaluate and treat for the entire state of South Carolina. And I cried for three days after our proposal was accepted because I was so happy. <laughs> but like, but y'all, that was not big pockets. That was not, there was no money. It was volunteer work on our parts to an advocacy. And so I have to give a shout out to, she's the godmother of PFD in the public Emily schools. Emily Homer. Emily Homer. Yes. She is the fundamental building block for all things that we do. And it seemed unobtainable. But then when you and I talked a couple months ago, and it was May, you so inspired me. And your story is what kind of jump-started that here. And so thank you. I don't know if you realize like how absolutely instrumental talking to you was in helping us draft that proposal. So like- Well, I'm so excited. I'm so excited for your state and I'm so excited for all the kids, like all the kids that are going to benefit. Like that's just such a huge impact because that's such a huge barrier. I mean, I think that's a lot of what SLPs run into in the schools, right? Like we know it's in our scope, but then the question of, is this educationally relevant? Like always comes up and it's, well, is that, is that the role of the school? And you're like, yes, nutrition and learning, nutrition and learning. They're so tied. That's why we have free introduced lunches. Like, you know, so folks, I can tell you once we finish doing the policy and procedure manual, cause that's on the to-do list. And I may start crying if I think about that. Um, once that is done, um, we're going to share all of our resources for free with feeding matters. And we're just putting it there to share. So please take it and do what you want with it. But knowledge is power. And I really feel that it should be shared. So um, stay tuned. Give give me grace in six to eight weeks and then we'll have it all together. But like, you know, casual. Okay. So that's, but take us from the top. Take us from when you're putting it together. How did you figure out your team? How did you, I mean, heavens to Betsy's, how did you make the pitch to your principal like, yo, I think we should do this. And this is why. (laughs) So the background is a little bit different um, because I'm in Pennsylvania. And so we have like in each county, there's multiple school districts and and each county has what's called an intermediate unit, which is kind of like a specialized service provider that each district pays into to kind of like share that resource to a degree. And then there's like paid services. So at that time, my direct supervisor actually was a speech language pathologist, which made me very fortunate and lucky. And she, you know, was originally like, I know you have a background in feeding and swallowing, but like, you know, hmm, like we don't really, we don't really do that. And I was like, eh, you know, and we just kept talking. Um, and eventually, you know, we had students that had needs. Um, actually the impetus was a student moved in with dysphagia services, um, like pediatric feeding disorder services, um, because we didn't have that PFD um, name back then, but moved in with services for feeding um, concerns from another another location. And it was on their IEP. And one of the schools in our area was like, oh no, because you know, when it's in the IEP, then you're legally obligated to provide it. And they said, oh my goodness, like we don't have anybody to provide this. And so I obviously like helped in that situation. And then that was kind of, okay, we need to get this rolling. Um, You know, there's more, there's more kids out there. We do have a role in this. Um, So what we kind of did was we didn't recreate the wheel, right? We reached out to Emily Homer. um, We gobbled up all the resources we could from her. And we also looked around, um, 
in different states in different areas that already kind of were ahead of where we wanted to or we were and where we wanted to be, right? They had established feeding protocols. Um, so like the state of Connecticut has a great manual actually um, that we use to help um, get kind of feed our information, you know, see what had already been done, what precedents had been set obviously Louisiana as well. And what we did was we put together a proposal. So what we said was, you know, feeding and swallowing services are relevant in the schools. There's educational impact um, for learning, you know, for behavior. If you're starving, you can't pay attention, right? You can't learn. (laughs) Hangry is a legitimate state of being, even for the SLP that has too high of a caseload, but yes. (laughs) Right. Hangry is real. Um, And when kids get hangry, they can't learn, right? Um, And then we know limited diets, you know, my, uh, macro and micronutrient deficiencies, you know, learning, all that stuff. So we put that together and went from like the student perspective when we were pitching this to the schools and the principals and the administrators. So, you know, here's how it impacts learning. Here's how it impacts behavior. Here's how, here's like what you're already doing for free and reduced lunches, et cetera. Okay. There, there's like the altruism piece, right? It's best for your students. Okay. Here's the financial piece now. Like if you don't offer it, and, you know, parents really want it, you're going to end up in due process, which has legal complications, which has financial implications for your district, um, which could cost a lot of money. Also, there's a huge safety component um, for our kids that have true dysphagia. You know, if you can't prove that they've been trained, that staff has been trained and truly knows, not just like says, oh, yeah, I know they have dysphagia, but actually understands that individual student's dysphagia and feeding needs, then there is a lot of legal liability for you because as a school, you are required to keep your students safe, right? Um, So we have allergy tables, we have all that. So that was kind of how we pitched it was a, it's cheaper to just be proactive than reactive. And here is how it'll benefit students. Um, And what I really found was, too, like I wanted to hit the argument as an SLP, especially coming from my, you know, EI medical background, like Asha says, and they're like, I don't, it's Asha, like I'm a principal, like, 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 what's the Department of Ed say? And I'm like... Okay. (laughs) So what actually worked better was we went into the Department of Ed's job description for a speech language pathologist um, in the state of PA. And it said, you know, on one of the things it said, like feeding and swallowing, we're like, look, the Department of Ed, because they had essentially taken the job responsibilities from ASHA and then copied and pasted them, it was in there. So we're like, the Department of Ed also recognizes per when I apply for my certificate to work in the schools, that this is in my scope. So that's what they say. And then they were like, oh, it was kind of like what I realized now in hindsight was like I was speaking one language and they were speaking another. And I had to like put it in terms that they were used to working working with and understanding. Wait, is this why you went back for your educational doctorate? Yes. (laughs) So this was the impetus for why I went back because I – Oh, my God. That – Yes, that makes perfect freaking sense. Yep. So I was like going through this and I realized like I'm talking PFD language to people who are like, what? Like, and I was like, I have to understand the other side of this. And and you know, in sitting through these meetings, what I what I realized was kind of going back to your statement of like giving grace, like I will not, I will admit, like, I know it is frustrating for people that want to do pediatric feeding disorders in the schools and they can't they keep hitting barriers, right? But like I realize now, like I'm in an internship where I'm like working closely with school administration over the summer to like understand everything that they have on their plate. And there is so, there's so much, there's so much red tape in education. There are so many stipulations and so many T's and I's that need 
across and so much interaction with the solicitor, especially in special education, um, that I, I don't think it's not I don't think that you find that education administrators are doing this to be, you know, to, to be roadblocks. They just there's a lot on their plate. They don't quite see it from our perspective. And so if we can do the legwork to that for them to translate it into what this means in terms of their school law responsibility, their department of ed mandates, it makes better sense to them. They, they can see that bridge, right? But when I say, well, Asha says, and this is in my scope of practice, they're like, okay, well, I don't follow Asha because I'm a school administrator. I follow the department of ed <laughs> in school law. So so where where do those two things merge together, right? Where How do we marry that um, really, really was effective to kind of that first hurdle of even getting somebody to agree to like looking into this. It was really having to marry altruism and scope of practice and ASHA code of ethics and marrying that and kind of what we call like crosswalking it sometimes um, in education. So seeing how that crosses over into the Department of Ed mandates and laws um, and in school code that dictates how school are, schools are run and what they are, what their legal obligation and you know ethical obligations are to students. That was super, super helpful. Um, and I think it's it's hard, you know, because they they don't have a background and just they're like this what like what what are you talking about? I don't like okay, so you just have to cut their food up or they're just, all right, they want to eat chips all day. What's, what's the problem with that? And you're like, no, let me talk about how there's all this other stuff. And then, you know, once I've done that, a lot of times what I find is they'll go, oh, okay. Like, and it's, and it's not that they wanted to be like contrarians or anything. They just literally didn't know. Um, so they need that education um, that we can provide. But you also have to kind of frame it for, how that kind of directly should be something that they take action on because it it ties into them doing their job and their responsibilities as well. So I think that's kind of the biggest hurdle in any situation is how do you get that recognition? Um, and really my aha moment is you can't harp on like what Feeding Matter says and what Asha says and tell them, well, Feeding Matter says we should do it in the school. Like we, we all know, we all agree. We're on the same page here, right? We have to translate that into educational language. Um, so that's kind of that first step. And then once we kind of got that buy, that buy into that, like, you know, what we kind of did too, we kind of married these two steps. So we knew we had to get the buy-in. So we put all the buy-in pieces together and we accessed resources that we had and people that had done it successfully before. And then we also, instead of saying, well, now can I put it together? We kind of presented a vision. Like, this is what we think it should, you know, this is what we think it should look like. Because normally what happens in that next phase is somebody says to you, okay, I get what you're saying, but how are you going to address ABC123 problems that I see with what you're talking about? Um, and if you don't kind of already, if you've not already kind of brainstormed what problems they're going to bring to you, you're kind of then caught off guard in that conversation, right? It's like, uh, I don't know, let me get back to you. And they're like, yeah, this just can't be done, right? So it becomes another block. So we kind of put these two together and said, here's why. And here's how we think a how could look. Um, and we're open to feedback. Um, and, and we can, you know, like modify this and kind of brainstorm together. But here's kind of what we thought. In our area, one of the barriers was, okay, you're telling me that SLPs should do this. And you've given me information about why it's financially, legally, and school code mandate, you know, advantageous for me to address this in the schools. Now, how do you want me to do this, right? Um, schools budgets are strapped. There's a lot of stipulations on how they spend money. It's not even just like, I think a lot of times people think like schools get all this money and they should, yeah, but there's so much red tape. I'm learning around like 
what funds are earmarked for what things and they're very specifically defined, it's not as easy as it looks. So that was a lot of what we would hear is, well, how am I supposed to train all of my SLPs? Or like, you know, and even if I send them to a CEU, like they were like, can I send them to a CEU? It is a one and done. And I'm like, no, like, no, no, folks, a one and done is not a thing for any part of being a speech pathologist, especially for the part where if you mess it up, you could kill a kid. So remember that take all the evidence-based courses. And on that note, I just have to say, please reach out and check out Purdue I Eat with the one and only Dr. Georgia Mellon Drecke to find out why non-speech oral motor exercises have insufficient and counterindicated evidence-based practice. Throw the tomatoes. This is the science. Okay, continue. Sorry. <laughs> no, that's a great website and a great resource too. So what we, you know, so we kind of wanted, they were like, okay, well, is this like some training that they can like go do and be done? And we're like, yeah, that's not really how this works. Um, but I get it because, you know, that's kind of, it, it's just very different in education. So you kind of have to just keep thinking like, no, you know, you're getting trained. Yes, you could take a training, but they still need somebody to mentor them and, and you know, and all kids with PFDs are so vastly different that, you know, one training is not going to be enough. And so then they see dollar signs, right? Like, oh my goodness, how am I going to afford this? Um, so what we kind of said was, listen, and then we were in a unique position because I was there um, and I had that, you know, medical background and that strong background. I, I had about nine years of experience in pediatric feeding disorders when I made this switch. So we said, for the money that you would spend to get somebody competent, even one person in your district, um, your caseload numbers are super high. You know, there's a bunch of things that are going on. It makes more sense to share the resource. What sometimes you will find in bigger districts is like they train one person per school building because there's like thousands of kids in the school building, right? Um, none of our buildings were like that. So that was kind of a barrier for us. Like, we can't train everybody and some SLPs go between buildings. They're only in this building on certain days, right? So what does that look like? So we did a shared resource of me, essentially. So I was the <laughs> I was the dysphagia consultant and they could um, identify. So what we kind of did was we said, you know, you can reach out to me and then I can come in and I can work with that IEP team at the school. So essentially, whoever that person's SLP was, you know, most most school SLPs, what I realized was in, in talking to them and when we did trainings with them, it wasn't that they didn't, fe- they knew when something was wrong, right? They were like, oh, there's something here. But they were like, I don't want to be the one responsible for figuring out what to do about it or what exactly it is. I just know enough to know that this, you know, isn't like, this isn't normal and this is something that needs addressed. But I, they're, they're trying to practice at the top of their license, right? Like I, I don't know how to do this. And so do no harm. I I'm trying not to do harm here. Um, but when I don't have anywhere else to go, what am I supposed to do? Like that was a lot of like this rock in a hard place kind of conversation we had. And then when we said, well, that's easy. You can refer to, to me. I, I know how to do this. Um, they were like, oh, thank goodness. Um, and that was kind of a huge weight off of their shoulders. Um, so they would refer and then I would go in and work with that IEP team. So in an ideal world, you know, when I originally we were developing this team, I was like, I really want an OT counterpart. But the problem was we really just for like resources in the way that like contracts were written for therapies in our counties and stuff, it wasn't a possibility. Um, So what I did was I had an OT that I could access that had a background in pediatric feeding if there was if it was something that I felt was like grossly out of my scope that I needed. Um, And the OT that was on the child's case felt like they didn't have the skill set that the child needed, we could access them kind of on an on needed basis. But I would go in 
and at least see the child, do the consult. But I was always there with that other SLP, right? That other SLP always had to be there um, because it really was in their scope. And I was coming in as a specialist, like consultant is what they called it. And so then I could support them, but it was great because it was like built in mentoring, right? Like, so when I would keep working with that same SLP over and over and over again, they were getting mentoring and training on the spot specific to the student that they had. Um, And it was really cool for me because I felt like every time that I worked with these same SLPs again and again, they'd be like, oh, you know, they'd pick up something that I had like told them before. They'd be like, isn't that, you know, isn't that happening because they don't have good oral sensory perception? And I'm like, yes, like exactly. Like, (laughs) and then they would like make referrals and say, I think this is what I'm seeing when I went in, but I'm still not sure can you come in? And then there would be times where I came in, I'd be like, yeah, I agree with you. And then they'd be like, so I want to do X, Y, Z, one, two, three. And I'd be like, yep, go ahead. <laughs> like, And it was just kind of almost that consult. They, you know, they, we grew their capacity. Um, they learned, they had that kind of, you know, like mentor, built-in mentoring um, that came as part of that as well. Um, and it was really nice. So our team kind of was always the school IEP team. And we encourage each building to come up with their own procedures. Like, okay, so an SL, so somebody identifies a concern. It may not be the SLP. It might be the nurse. The parent might bring it up in the IEP meeting. What does that kind of chain of command look like? They typically what the process was that most people adapted, and we kind of did a working session together. Most buildings decided, okay, they'll notify the SLP, who will fill out a referral or refer to me, and then I'll come in and work with that school team. Most times, um, our team was always included the nurse. Because we could get them, the nurse would help get the paperwork signed, would get the record releases, right? Would get the medical information, the outpatient stuff that I could review. The parent, you know, the school teacher, if they had an aide, um, they were always involved. The OT, the PT. Um, and we kind of decided, like, the speech service always had to be there. And then we would say, like, okay, does the OT need to be there? Does the PT need to be there? Do they both need to be there? The teacher definitely needs to be there. And I would go in and I would do, like, a... I'm coming in to see what's happening right now, like in this cafeteria before I make any suggestions or, you know, make any modifications and then kind of move, move from there. Um, What we typically had was the SLP was the case manager related to all things dysphagia and pediatric feeding. So even if, you know, the special ed teacher was the primary person case manager, like in terms of the IEP, meaning like they're in charge of all the paperwork related to the IEP, really though, the SLP drove the bus on the feeding and swallowing because that's in our scope, right? So they were that point of contact. They were the main person. Um, When we did all of the like, you know, what our recommendations are, what this child needs, how we're going to work on, you know, making progress or accommodating them, whatever the goals were for that specific child, we then trained everybody in the school. Um, If you look at school litigation where schools get in trouble when it comes to pediatric feeding disorders and when it comes to um, dysphagia, a lot of times it's that like one or only like one or two people really know like that student and what they need or what they're safe to eat or what they are willing to eat or, you know, whatever's going on. And then those people are out or they're sick or they, you know, or they're somewhere else and then nobody knows what that child needs and then something happens. Um, So what we did was we kind of had a, okay, so they have a PCA, that person needs to be, you know, the, the person who really knows. But there's also a classroom assistant, maybe they also need to know and the teacher needs to know and the SLP and the OT and the backup person. And they all have been trained and they all sign off on like what this child's individual feeding plan essentially is and what they're, you know, what they need to do in each meal and snack and whatever. And then if one of those people, like if the PCA is out, then it goes to the classroom assistant, the classroom assistant's out, you know, and the teacher 
is on their contractual lunch, then, you know, the SLP can step in or, you know, this person can step in. And then the nurse has always like got a copy of that paperwork. It's in their file. But it also, this is like the biggest thing and it seems so like mindless, but there's always a copy in the sub folder. <laughs> so like there is when you leave your like sub lesson plans as a teacher, you're like, here's what you're supposed to do with the students today, right? Like there's also this, oh, and Johnny has a feeding plan and here's where it is and here's who knows it. And no, you can't be the one involved in this feeding because you haven't been trained, but here's the people that can. So you can make sure that the child gets what they need. Okay, so. Which is so important. <laughs> I, one, I didn't even think about the sub plan. So that's freaking brilliant. Thank you. I'm going to copy that and make sure give you credit. But one thing that came up was the question when you were talking about practicing at the highest level of our scope, the highest level of our license. This is something that an SLPA cannot do. If you get on ASH's website and you look at the SLPA certification, feeding and swallowing are not within their scope of practice, right? And so here's the catch. The the question was posed, but you're telling me that a parapro is doing feeding therapy. The parapro is not doing feeding therapy. They're just feeding the patient according to the um, plan that the SLP has created, right? The, the team has created with the SLP leading. The actual therapy where you're doing advanced viscosity trials, where you're making changes, where you're food chaining or SOS approaching or get permission approach, when you're doing the skilled clinical intervention, that is done by the SLP or the occupational therapist, okay? But the SLPA, they are not allowed to be part of this process because it falls outside of their scope of practice as indicated by the SLPA certification as well as um, uh, respective state licenses. So just to be perfectly clear in everybody's roles, who can come to the table literally and who cannot. So just, and I think you have to go back. Sorry. Well, in PA, we don't even have SLPAs in schools. Like, uh, so that's something that, I mean, it's an SLP or an OT and that's it. So I always forget that there's that variation in the South, but yeah, they're not, it's not in their scope. We don't have enough schools. That's like, historically, there's more speech pathology schools up North than there are down South. Anywho. Fun historical fact. Ta-da. <laughs> so yeah, essentially that's exactly what it is. So it's almost like if you go back to the argument of skilled service, right? So my husband's an adult SLP and I think about you hear in adult forums a lot, like you don't just go watch somebody eat. That's not skilled. You don't just go feed them according to their compensatory strategies. That's not your job. Like a CNA can do that. An aide can do that because there's not something skilled. So if you have a feeding plan for a student that is just... This is what happens at every meal that's not a skilled intervention, that's not a therapeutic intervention. Yes, that's where our PCAs would step in. And that's where, you know, in the South, I guess an SLPA could, you know, provide support as well. But anything that's skilled advancement or, you know, or working on chewing skills or food chaining, yeah, that's an intervention that falls under my license and my skill set to be the one advancing that. Then I can change the plan based on how they do, right, how they're doing in their intervention, and then kind of transfer that, you know, application of these strategies or, you know, or whatever it is that I'm working on further down. Um, but that's all being dictated kind of by the SLP or the OT, whoever's doing it in the school. Um, and that's something else that you kind of work out too, you know, um, some SLPs aren't really comfortable with a lot of sensory-based intervention, but there are OTs that are. Um, it, but, you know, my whole thing is every time that there's a safety issue, I, you know, I, as an SLP, always want to be be involved in that decision-making because that that's really, that's really kind of in our scope. But that's kind of how we did it. You know, an all-hands 
on deck approach was just so, so important. Um, the other thing, you know, you said, oh, subplan, I didn't think about that. The other thing that really I hadn't even admittedly even thought about that came up when I actually started doing consults in the school was birthday parties and field trips. So how do, you know, at a field trip, we give everybody like a ham sandwich or a, like a hoagie and an apple or like carrots, you know, and, and you're like, uh, <laughs> you know, and legally, if like a child's on free and reduced lunches, you can't make the family send in this stuff um, for them. You have to, the school has to provide it. And so we had to come up with plans about just like you would with allergies, right? Like, well, we have to make sure that the snacks that are coming in for birthday parties are appropriate for the kids in the classroom that have pediatric feeding disorders in that they can be included, right? Um, So just like gluten-free or nut-free, you have to consider that the same thing for birthday parties, the same thing thinking about how are we going to provide a packable lunch that meets the child's needs as well? Because we're already, you know, especially for certain certain kiddos, we're already taking them on a field trip, which could be super challenging. Like, let's also make sure we're giving them food that they that they're able to eat, so we're, we don't have hangry kids out of their routine on a field trip. Because um, that's definitely, you know, not not ideal. So there's just some other things, and then one thing that I think I was just I think blind to as an EI, you know, you go in everybody's house and you're like, okay, this is like what they're doing at home. This is great. Or you see them in in a clinic at, you know, outpatient or at a hospital and they look fine. I never, I mean, like I knew, but I never really gave deep thought into how much a cafeteria plays into successful feeding for a child with a pediatric feeding disorder or just, you know, or just, just some like safety, like dysphagia stuff, because things like attention and overstimulation and the lights and the noise and the acoustics and the smells. And, you know, there's so all this other food around you and they're cooking spaghetti in the cafeteria, you know, like all that kind of stuff um, really can come into play for a kiddo at school that they might come to school and have real challenges in the cafeteria that they don't have at home. And like figuring out that disconnect, a lot of times I found it was like, okay, well, I'm going into a cafeteria and they're sitting on a tiny little stool bench. You know, they don't even benches in in their cafeteria tables. They're like individual stools and the kiddos, you know, feet are off the floor and they're like, you know, sitting on a sit and spin trying to eat. And there's like a lot of noise and a lot of smells and there's just a lot going on. Um, So sometimes yeah. And so you're sometimes it's just like that environment. You're like, okay, step one, put their feet on the floor. Step two, like, can we sit on something else? You don't think about that necessarily when you're in the hospital, right? So like, I think that's the other thing that it's really informed kind of like, because I still pee, I still will pre-COVID like PRN at the hospital, like on the rehab unit and stuff. I would really, when we were talking about discharge to home and, you know, I'd be like, okay, well, does anybody talk to them about the cafeteria? Like, what, what are they going to eat? If they're sitting in this really supportive chair because they have dysphagia and they need this supervision and they need to like, you know, attend are they going to be successful in the cafeteria with 150 other fourth graders or second graders? Like somebody's going to have to look at that when they go, um, which I just think is easy to overlook because the even, I mean, even coming from public school, right? Like your lunch was your free time. You're like, woohoo! <laughs> like this is like the fun time. Um, and so people don't think about how hard that, inv- that's not free time for our kids with pediatric feeding disorders, right? It's so challenging. Um, and we put so, putting all those kids together, there's so many factors that come into play that kind of 
just don't get thought about at home because we sit in high back chairs and we're like, no, oh, you got to put their feet on the floor, right? Like that kind of like mom sense kicks in at home for their parents and it might not just even get conveyed just out of like not knowing, especially in COVID when families can't go into schools to really see right now, right? Like it's really hard. So those are kind of the things that that I kind of think about that make feeding programs in schools really successful, but also make them really unique. And I think those are things that are even good takeaways if you're not a school SLP, but you're working with children that go to schools because they all go to school, right? Like things to think about when you're making recommendations, like that might work at home, but is that going to work at school? And if it's not going to work at school, like maybe reaching out to that school SLP and like make it functional and, and gather that information and work collaboratively um, kind of across the table. That's a huge thing. Um, when I've seen kids move in from other areas that they've been addressing feeding, like in other states or other areas, and they've come into like our, our schools and I've like consulted with them. One thing that I think I've seen that makes it more challenging is if school's in a silo, right? Like if school's doing one thing and they're not, and they're like, well, this is what I think. And this is what we're doing here. And they're not accessing the medical professionals on the other side, or they're not accessing that outpatient SLP or that, you know, whoever is working, um, maybe that area digestive center or something. If there's not that back and forth conversation, it's really hard because those medical providers are going to make recommendations based on maybe, you know, not a full, a full, um, plate of information. They don't have that full picture. Um, and on the flip side, you could be making, uh, you know, decisions based on what you see in school and you don't have that full medical picture. So that's why we always got medical record releases too on the front end. So I could go in knowing what had been done, where they were going, and then pairing that with what was happening at the school, getting input from what does or doesn't work at home or does or doesn't work in therapy outpatient, and then seeing, you know, what's best practice for where where we are right now um, in school. It's just, it's a lot of collaboration. It's a lot of coordination, but that's how you do it well. And that's really how you improve that continuity of care. Um, between kind of that outpatient and inpatient and, you know, that school, that whole kind of continuum of care that we talk about. It's a lot of teaming. Some of the thoughts that crossed when we were building it down here, one of my girlfriends, Tessa Gonzalez, she's she's been on, she's actually a pediatrician and a special needs advocate mommy because she has a, a little one with special needs. And one of the things she said on the physician side which when you're y'all, when you're doing this, you have to take stakeholder buy-in into account, right? And the child's pediatrician, their PCP is a significant stakeholder in that child's outcome. She was like, a lot of times pediatricians don't realize that these services can be covered within the public schools. And she was like, and she was like, you want to make sure that you have one steady point of contact. So delegating that one team member to reach out to the pediatrician, she was like, otherwise, you know, if we're getting bombarded by multiple different people, she was like, you know, that's, that can be overwhelming. And what we did was we agreed on, at least internally, like in our special ed school, um, we delegated that person to be the nurse because it made the most sense because they're already going to reach out if there's something immunization wise, like right there, they already get like scripts for medication sign and, you know, whatever else it is, it's likely that these kids have something else like medication wise, they're already known. So it's, 
hey, you know, we're having a meeting regarding this student's feeding needs. There's concerns that have arise. They'd like your input. Like, can you participate? Can the PA participate? Can the MP participate? Or do you want us to send you the written report? Like, you know, what are your thoughts? Or can our SLP call you to discuss it directly? But it at least went through the nurse because then they knew, oh, this is about this student. This is this school calling. Okay. And now we're going to funnel it down. But that all went through the nurse because it kind of made the most sense for that streamlined approach. Yes. And that was, that was, she was like, give me one regular contact. Like that's, that's what, and I was like, that's brilliant. So a couple weeks ago, um, I in, um, interviewed Brianna Emanuel um, out of Wisconsin and she um, partnered with Talk to Me Technology. She's an SLP up there and created an AAC board for her local park. Right. Like, and we like talked through the process and an outgrowth of that conversation. Cause she works in the public schools as an SLP and like AAC is like her love. And, um, we talked about having, when you're going through the lunch line for our kiddos that have PFD. And I mean, a lot of times our little ones that have a pediatric feeding disorder, that could be one of their comorbidities. Like they could have like one overarching primary etiology that resulted in all of these different disorders and diseases, cognitive-based language impairment. Um, I'm thinking of like our stroke patients, right? So we were talking and in an outgrowth with having a functional AAC board in the school lunch line right there. So that way, if a child can't verbally communicate what it is that they want, they can make a choice right then and there. It could be high tech. It could be low tech. You could get creative about it. But I thought, what a way to like, it's a subtle way to set that child up for success when you're in the cafeteria and they can go through and, you know, they can have their choice right, right there. Like, you know, Hey, I want milk or I want juice today. You know, you could have it like working down the little lunch line because I mean, in the moment, that can be really intimidating, especially like, oh, what if they got like a new brand of milk? Or like, what if they got, were out of juice and the wrong juice got delivered? And, you know, that's not what they normally have. And when you take into all those 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 variables into account, but, you know, you've got functional language set up as like, as an assistive tool that carries over directly into PFT. I don't know. My warm and fuzzy heart thought that was freaking brilliant. No, I totally agree. I find myself, and on the flip side of that, I always talk about, you know, when people are like, well, how am I going to work on, you know, picky eating and like language and blah, blah, blah at the same. And I'm like, oh my goodness, they're they're perfect. And then I'm like, this is a great AAC test for carryover because they can go through the line. They can use their AAC and they can tell me why they don't like something even. They can be like, no, like, no, I don't look better. It's gross or it's wet or, you know, whatever that word is like they can talk or even just tell me it's color. You know, I'm, my heart's always in preschool. So I'm always down that, on that end of, of my thought process. But yeah, like just even that is like so important. And then I actually did a consult once where the um, the kids AAC was like not, not like it was there, but it wasn't like in front of them. And I could tell that like the student like just wasn't looking like they felt right. And I was like, let's just like put this in front of them. And they kept hitting go and they wanted to leave and they ended up being sick. So they said like, go, go, go. And then they left and they had like a stomach bug, whatever. And I was like, wow, like, that, you know, like they, but they could also tell me like they need, but then they also started generalizing that to like go, like I'm overstimulated and like go other things. So yeah, I mean, it, there is no black and white here. That's the whole way that I segued into getting into AAC was like, I was working with kids with multiple disabilities and feeding and I needed them to communicate like with me what they did and didn't want. And so then it just came right in. And then 
I always say AAC came in as like this secondary interest for me because I really needed to communicate about the feeding. And so like, I just had to figure out like how to do that and integrate the two. But yeah, I love that idea too. It's just so important. Communication is just kind of that root of everything, right? Yes. Oh my God. I freaking love you. Yes. Okay. All right. So on the, on my side, I don't work in the public schools. Like that's that's not my thing. I did it once upon a time and felt like a caged animal and had a panic attack and was like, this is not where I am supposed to be. And then, you know, hospital EI life, right? But early intervention is hard. And I am not being dismissive of that. We are drowning because we don't get medical records. We, I mean, it's, I live those trenches. I know it, right? However, y'all, our friends that work in the public schools, our colleagues that are there, most school districts have a caseload, not a workload. And it is harder for them to backtrack. I mean, if they're juggling 60 to 110 paid, like students a school year, it's harder for them to backtrack who is their community-based clinician, right? Versus us, you probably know what school that child is going to go to. And I'm sure that if you don't directly know that school-based SLP, you probably know a body who knows that person, right? If you have your consent to um, release information signed, again, legal matters, make sure that that is signed, pick up the phone and call send them an email and just say, hi, I have a student. I have a patient that will be attending your school. Is there a time that we can meet? Um, You may have to reschedule like eight different times, but like it's going to happen, right? And that's so helpful. It takes so much time to get those medical records like on our end, like when you're trying to backtrack out and like, and the thing I think that was always so frustrating sometimes would be like, we would try to, we'd get something signed on our end and we'd send it out to like the hospital or the school or whatever. And they want us to go through their medical records department, right? Which is fine. So then you like reach out and you submit and then you have to wait. And they're like, oh, well, you have your verbal and written release form, but not ours signed. So, well, can you get our version signed before I can connect you to that SLP and then send you the medical records? So then I'm like trying to track down, you know, mom to get her like sign this other form. And she's like, I already signed it. And I'm like, I know, but that facility wants this specific form. So then you're like doing all this, like running around. So even on the flip side, if you're a community provider, you can get like at intake, like, oh, your child's in school here, sign this so I can communicate with the school. Like even just having that in place saves so much like runaround if the school person's trying to find you Um, because it it does, it gets really, it gets really challenging. And if it, I love, I was blessed in that a lot of times um, when we had the appropriate medical you know, when we had a medical release on both ends and everything, the stars were aligned, I had a lot of connections to those medical SLPs, but not everybody has that. And even when I had that, it was really hard. It was like hard to like line up time to talk. So yeah, that's super important. I think the other thing that's super important too, like having that paper trail. So like if they get into second grade or, you know, third grade or kindergarten or whatever, like mom says, like, you know, the first IEP, your dad or caregiver, whomever is like, oh, yeah, you know, they're like, you know, we know they don't really eat lunch. They're like, oh, yeah, they have, you know, a pediatric feeding disorder. And they've been in, they were in therapy until they turned three and then they didn't get services. anymore. you're like, what? You know, and then you're trying to backtrack, like, where did that stop? Like, like, how did I not get information on that? And so one of the other things, like, because we're talking about coordinating care that I think is like so important is we actually at birth to three transition into preschool EI, 
started asking at the transition meeting, do they get feeding services? I don't care if it's OT, if it's PT, if or if it's OT, if it's speech, if it's nutrition. Like, are they getting some sort of support because there was a concern for feeding and swallowing? Yes. Okay. Now that gets checked, and then automatically we we go through and figure out like what is that. Now sometimes you know they're getting like nutrition consults because they've got like lactose intolerance. You know they've got like a bunch of allergies and they're just working with nutrition and EI for that. Like that sometimes happens. That's different. But at least knowing and in copying for that information. Like we, they were getting this service. They were only getting this service because they had nutrition concerns related to severe allergies to a lot of foods and da, 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 da. And so at this point that, you know, we're aware of them, but we're not providing any, any interventions because we're just acknowledging the allergies and, and pushing that forward and making sure that the preschool is aware of them. So they, you know, follow allergy procedure. That's one thing. But making sure that kind of flows through at all of those transition meetings. So we were like having transition meetings, which we're required to do from birth to three to three to six. It's being talked. It's being talked about there, and then we're making sure that 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 information and that kind of service and that reevaluation for that service follows through to EI, and then it's documented and stays in that e- in that EI IEP, that three to six IEP. And then when they go to kindergarten, because in our state, they go from an EI program that's three to six to like a local school district that starts at K. We have another meaning. That's now another step. If they have a feeding report, if they have a feeding plan, if they have you know services related to feeding, that gets discussed at that transition meeting. So what used to happen in the first year or so of us having the feeding program was like, we might have not known in preschool, like something might, got miscommunicated or, or, you know, fell off or something happened between birth to three and three and, and three to six. And then I ended up in kindergarten and nobody knew. And then I was like running around, like trying to see, you know, all these like kids, like in the first month of school, like, oh my gosh, where did this kid come from? Why did I not know about them? And then I'm like running around with a chicken with my head cut off. I'm like, help! Like, and I look like I don't know what I'm doing. Like, how was I not aware? And then we were like, okay, back up. Like, this is what's happening. Like, even even if they, and sometimes what was happening was they were going to like a preschool that was like a half day preschool and they were getting like our tick therapy only and they only had a snack and it had to be parent provided, right? Because it was like a private preschool. So like the parents were like, oh, this is just something that we deal with at home. I'm not even going to mention it to like my, you know, preschool IEP team because it's not relevant. They don't eat there. Like it doesn't matter. They only go to preschool two, you know, mornings and they come home and eat lunch and dinner and eh, they just didn't cross their mind to like convey. And then they go to school and they get breakfast and lunch and the teacher's like, something's up here. I don't know what's happening. (laughs) And I'm like, and I'm like, oh my gosh, this child had services. What happened? But it was something just as innocent as that, right? Like it just didn't get conveyed because it didn't seem relevant at that time, but it became highly relevant in the next stage of learning. Um, So we really made a point to say like, even if they're not getting services right now, or, you know, even if, you know, mom has declined or that sometimes happens too, like they just don't want the service right then and there and it's parent choice or whatever, but we at least document it. So there's that, what is happening here? You know, if you, if you need to, if you need to know, um, that really makes it really important. I think what really, I think it's really hard. It's like a magic light happens at three. They turn three and you're like, oh, somehow now your pediatric feeding disorder is no longer relevant. You're like, what? <laughs> like, I'm sorry. Like, I, I'm not sure how that happens. It's not like this light switch, right? And I do get that at three, we switch to educationally based services. So we're talking about learning, but like, I mean, this is the horse and you know, the hill that I'll die on. Like, Nutrition and learning are tied. We can't we can't untether these two topics. Um, 
So just really, I think, just making sure that there's that continuity, that flow, and that building of that infrastructure. I mean, if you don't have an expert there, especially with, I mean, we've all lived the Zoom existence for so long at this point. I think there is no excuse to not reach out to somebody who is somewhere else for support if you need it, because we, we've all been able to leverage technology um, out of necessity. And now I think we need to really think about how do we leverage that to help these kids that may, may not live in urban areas or may live in really rural areas um, where there's limited services. Like, there are ways we can leverage telehealth and teletherapy for these kids to make sure and to support their learning. So that's kind of like my new, my new soapbox a little bit there, but you know, you can find a mentor anywhere, (laughs) anywhere, and you can zoom anyone. Um, We've all done it for 18 months. There's no excuse anymore. (laughs) So, and and y'all remember that there are mentors out there for you. One, there's free resources that can mentor and inspire you. Um, Madeline Ratz, Dr. Madeline Ratz, she's actually from Australia. Uh, she is a phenomenal leader on pediatric feeding swallowing via teletherapy. That was the basis of her dissertation. She's got webinars, um, a couple that I know of, um, Dysphasia Research Society she lectured at. I fangirl her. I think she is phenomenal. Um, Time zone changes. Um, Also, again, Dr. Georgia Melandrecki has a ton of stuff on dysphagia via teletherapy as well and how you can do that. Reach out to Feeding Matters because they have parent mentors. And I'm sure that if you call and ask a question that they will be able to like, again, they don't pay us to be here. We're just like, I uh, appreciate them and fangirl them. And there are those resources. But mentorship versus sponsorship mentors mentor you one-on-one, but a real sponsor, somebody that's going to pour that extra bit into you is that when you leave the room and you're not there, they're going to sing your praises and give you credit when you're not around. And that's a whole nother level of building each other up. And I had a thought that this whole, yes, we are an educational model. Three to 21 is part B of IDEA special education law. And Part C is the world that I live in. And yes, I understand it has to be, again, educationally relevant. But the truth of the matter is that we're treating children with special needs because of that medical etiology that these babies would not have survived 10 years ago. They wouldn't have survived five years ago. But with the advances in medicine, they're they're surviving and thriving. And also in our state, they're billing insurances um, for services rendered within Part B and Part C. Mm-hmm. You can bill in Pennsylvania too um, through medical access billing. Yes. So, yep. so if if you're billing insurance for the services that you're rendered, you have to prove medical necessity, not just educational necessity. And so PFDs both. Because you are absolutely, you cannot untether nutrition and education. Like they are, you, you got to have one to have the other. And, but also remember, this is highest level of our license. And if you're, you're practicing in there, you have to demonstrate medical necessity. So RAR. The other point that I like to make, I think about this a lot. Okay. So the purpose of special education, right? From an, put my education hat on, my, my educational doctor hat on, like we're looking at special education to maximize the independence of students when they leave, when they're 21, right? We want them to be independent. We talk about transition plans. We talk about what do you want to do? What's your vocational goal? Like, how are we going to job train you, right? How are we going to immerse you? Okay, 
So part of that life, and then we also teach them like, how do you keep your house, right? How do you do laundry? How do you, like there's a life skill component of that. There's life skill education. Okay, you need to eat to live. It's like the most basic life skill. <laughs> like we And we really focus on toilet training and even preschool EI because it's such an important life skill, right? Like toileting is an important life skill. I mean, we had this conversation on the last podcast that I was on, but like they're intrinsically tied, like eating, hello, another life skill. Uh, you don't toilet without eating. They're all tied there together. So feeding and swallowing is a life skill. I think, you know, it is scary. I get it. You don't want to do it if you don't have the skills. Um, That's why, you know, contracting out to like a person to come train you or that individual in the community that has that expertise and maybe is in a private practice and can be that person to help, you know, get that, get that program up and running or, or, you know, just thinking outside of the box, Um, you know, identifying one person in your school system that really has a passion for it. Um, typically, that's going to be you if you're the one advocating to start it. So I say, like, like volunteer is tribute. I, I'm the one who's willing to do this. Um, no, call me, email me, Instagram message me. I will gladly help in any way, shape, or form. Um, yeah, me too. I I always tell people that I'm like, reach out to me. I don't honestly like I share my information freely. I've been there. You can learn from what I've done that hasn't worked. Um, so you don't repeat it. And you can also, you know. I can share, you know, my kind of thoughts or, or, you know, ideas, um, you know, anything that I can do to help support. I mean, we brought in Emily Homer when we were putting our program together just to kind of bring that outside perspective in, right. To say, listen, this isn't just like Kristen and her supervisor, like thinking this is something that needs to be done. Like this is happening other places, like, you know, and it has been done, but been done well and been done successfully. And look, here's this outside person that there's their expertise in that. And that really helped just even just having like an outside person come in to just speak to them that like, Oh, you know, like here's our perspective. It, 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 it really, it really can help. And I'm always willing to, to do that for people because I'm just so passionate about this service for students, but also for their families. You know, I can't imagine what that must feel like to send your kid to school, knowing they have a pediatric feeding disorder and knowing you're not there for two meals a day. Like that's got to be gut wrenching and, and really, you know, and, and really scary. Um, and I think just that's a lot of feedback I got from families was, I'm just so grateful this service is available. So I know exactly that I know that they know what needs to be done in school, or I know that this is at least being addressed in school um, or that my kids getting what they, what they need because I love my school and they're doing such great things for them educationally. This is such a struggle for my child. And just knowing that that support is there really just takes a weight off my shoulders. Um, because, you know, like you said, those special needs families, like they're under a lot of stress. Anything that we can do to support them, um, you know, is always going to be something that we should be trying to do. So I love you. You're amazing. I'm just passionate about kids getting what, what they need, where they are at all times. Like I said, it's not a switch. They don't like walk into school and all of a sudden they don't have a pediatric feeding disorder. And we, we can't. <laughs> We can't, we can't be ostriches that just like put their heads in the sand and pretend like it's not there either. Um, that's not going to do anybody a service. So, but I get it. We want it. We want to do it right too. You, you can't half it. You have to do it with fidelity. So it's a lot of work, but it's work that's worth it. I mean, it was insanity um, when we were getting that up and running and I couldn't have done it without my administrative support. Um, so I think that's the big thing is you got to find your champion, find the person who really 
gets what you're doing um, and push it through. But when you have a state like South Carolina that now the Department of Ed will actually recognize it, that really takes a lot of the advocating weight off of you as the SLP because you can just reference, no, look, here's what the state says. We didn't have that in Pennsylvania, so it was a little bit harder uh, for us because the Department of Ed doesn't really have a firm stance on it. But when you have that, that's going to be, you know, you, you've already got some of the work done for you. <laughs> yes. So huge, huge thank you to Angie Neal for letting this dream come to fruition because rar, thank you, lady. I, I don't know if you ever listen or not, but I am forever indebted to you because you just made my Monday through Friday for every patient that I work with and every kid in the state. Uh, all the ones that are yet to be born, you changed their stars before they were even written there. And that's that's pretty cool. So, all right, before I start crying, because like, yeah, I'm telling you, I like happy cried for three days. And then, and then Christian, oh, thing, my husband turns around and he goes, all right, so if we got this to go through in South Carolina, when are you going to collaborate and try to get this pushed through nationally? And I was like, are you freaking kidding me? Can I have like 30 seconds to catch my breath? And then, oh, that's a really good idea. Who do we know? How can we advocate? So Christian, when, when we, when we start down that rabbit hole, hey, 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 I know who I'm calling. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I'm there. I'm there. I mean, it's just, it's so important. I mean, I mean, Emily Homer's been doing, did this for so like her whole career and she's just, you know, I mean, like, and it's still not caught. Like, I just think that, I mean, it's just so important. I, I really, I can't stress it enough. I think it's just so important. And especially for, and again, especially for those, those, you know, those students and those children and those families that they only have access to services in schools. Like we are putting that population at such a, we're doing such a disservice to those kids that live in more rural areas or those kind of like therapy deserts where school is the only place um, that they can get their service. Like there, there should not be that discrepancy that you have to live in a, you know, you have to live in an urban area to get access to better special education services. Um, that's, you know, a topic for another day. But, you know, at least with some sort of mandate or some sort of recognition, formal recognition from Department of Eds that, yes, this is in the SLP scope. Yes, this has educational relevance. Yes, you need to directly address it versus kind of going like, eh, let's make an individual determination. Um it's really going to do a lot to advocate for those families that may really have trouble advocating for themselves um, or may not know that they can. That's the other thing. Sometimes they just don't know. The school tells them no and, and you know, they're like, okay, that's, that is what it is. And it's like, no, no <laughs> this is just, really important. We can do this. We can do the hard thing. <laughs> okay. All right. So if folks want to learn more from you, how can they reach you, ma'am? You can email me. That's probably the easiest way for you to email me. You can email me at my at my uh, university email. That's probably the best one. So it's kwest at edinburgh. So it's E-D-I-N-B-O-R-O. Go borough. Um, at e- dot edu. So kwest at edinburgh dot edu um, is my email. They can get a hold of me that way. Or they can reach out to you. Then you can just forward them on to me if, that, if they're not able to get me that way because I'm going to admit Sometimes our uh, security spam filter is pretty high. So if you don't get a hold of me that way, reach out to First Bite and Michelle, she'll, she'll get you to me. <laughs> yes. Yes. So on that note, um, head us up Instagram land at First Bite Podcast, um, on Facebook, First Bite Podcast. Um, and as always, we love it when you give us an Apple iTunes review. Um, so Shout out to all the thank yous for the kind words that we've received lately. And uh, don't forget, folks, that uh, Chasing the Swallow, the book that I still can't believe I somehow managed by the grace of God and Aaron, Annalisa, Mern, Sydney, and Aaron's dad, and all of the amazing editors, Dr. Gonzalez, um, 
<laughs> just to name a few. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for the help. It is available for sale right now on Amazon, and it is also eligible for 13.5 hours worth of Astro continuing education through speechtherapypd.com. Um, and I love it when you leave a review there too. So also, I still feel like a schmuck saying that. It's an amazing <laughs> resource and it's a phenomenal book. Thank you. Oh my God. <laughs> I'm like, I, you know, hey, I I can honestly say I am moving again since I finished the book and my pants fit better. I gained all of the baby weight birthing a book. <laughs> so, <laughs> oh, that's funny. Okay. All right. Y'all, we appreciate you. Happy whatever day of the week it is that you're listening. And Kristen, you're a rock star and an inspiration. Thank you for being you, lady. <laughs> Thank you for having me. It's been so fun as always. And and I'm hoping that people are inspired to go do the hard thing after this episode. Yes. And then message us, tell us the results, tell us how, how you affected change. Cause we like sharing that too. So feeding matters guides system wide changes by uniting caregivers, professionals, and community partners under the pediatric feeding disorder Alliance. So what is this Alliance? The Alliance is an open access collaborative community focused on achieving strategic goals within three focus areas, education, advocacy, and research. So who is the Alliance? It's you. The Alliance is open to any person passionate about improving care for children with a pediatric feeding disorder. To date, 187 professionals, caregivers, and partners have joined the Alliance. You can join today by visiting the Feeding Matters website at www.feedingmatters.org. Click on PFD Alliance tab and sign up today. Change is possible when we work together. That's a wrap, folks. Once again, thank you for listening to First Bite, fed, fun, and functional. I'm your humble but yet sassy host, Michelle Dawson, the All Things Peds SLP. This podcast is part of a course offered for continuing education through speechtherapypd.com. Please check out the website if you'd like to learn more about CEU opportunities for this episode, as well as the ones that are archived. And as always, remember, feed your mind, feed your soul, be kind, and feed those babies. Hey, so it's Michelle Dawson here, and I need to lay out my disclosure statements. So uh, if you ever wondered how bad my ADD, ADHD, and lack of sleep Monday through Monday actually is, well, here you go. These are my non-financial disclosure statements. I volunteer with Feeding Matters. I'm a former treasurer with the Council of State Association Presidents. I'm a past president with the South Carolina Speech Language Hearing Association. I am a current member of both ASHA and SCISHA. And uh, for this year, for 2021, I volunteered for the Pediatric Feeding Disorder Planning Committee for the ASHA 2021 convention. My financial disclosures 
Okay. All right. So I receive compensation for first bite presentations as well as talking teletherapy and understanding dysphagia from speechtherapypd.com. I also receive royalties from speechtherapypd.com for ongoing webinars that I have on their website, as well as compensation from PESI Incorporate for a uh, lecture course that a webinar that I have on their website as well. I am coordinator for clinical education and clinical assistant professor for the Masters of Speech Language Pathology program at Francis Marion University in Florence, South Carolina, for which I receive an annual salary. I also receive royalties from the sale of my book, Chasing the Swallow, Truth, Science, and Hope for Pediatric Feeding and Swallowing Disorders, that I self-published and is available on Amazon. And I do receive royalties from the accompanying 13 and a half hour CEU for the book from speechtherapypd.com. So yeah, I stay pretty busy, but those are my financial and non-financial disclosures. If you ever have any questions, please feel free to reach out. All right. Thanks y'all. Bye.